Hello and welcome to Girl Boss Radio. I'm Puno, your host. It's great to meet you if this is the first episode that you're listening to of me. <laughs> Thanks for showing up. If you're like, who this? Why is she talking to me? Why do I have this voice? Well, you'll know why if you check out the last episode where Sophia is actually passing the torch to a new girl boss. But otherwise, you're in the right spot. And thanks for showing up. In June of 2015, the hashtag love wins. It was all over social media. And it was in celebration of the Supreme Court ruling legalizing same-sex marriage nationwide. A huge cheer, then singing as the decision reaches the crowd out front. The historic ruling struck down the bans on same-sex marriage still in effect in 14 states, all of them in the South and the Midwest. It was already legal everywhere else. That evening, the White House just lit up in rainbow colors to celebrate this critical step forward in our nation's long struggle for equality. And while this struggle is far from over, that summer of 2015, it's a reminder that our democracy plays a pretty big role in creating a more equitable world. A world that wouldn't be possible if not for the work of really courageous people. On today's episode of Girl Boss, we're gonna hear from one of these courageous people, someone who's been an advocate for equality almost her entire life. Rafi Friedman Gersman is a lot of things. She's a trans Latina, a Jewish American, she speaks Norwegian, she's adopted, and she's a former high school cheerleader. Rafi was named after her great grandmother, who's a suffragette and has spent her career advocating for diversity, equity, and inclusion from the smallest municipalities to the highest office in the land. That's right, the White House. Rafi is someone who reminds us that America is a place where countless identities intersect. And because she has so many identities, Rafi knows just how important other people's stories are. It's a perspective that's informed her advocacy work. Work she's built a career around and work that is driven by the belief that change in this country can happen from within the walls of our institutions, despite how broken they still are. And she has the proof to back this belief because by August of 2015, a few months after that historic decision, Rafi became the first openly transgender person to serve as a White House staff member. Rafi broke barriers. I mean, she paved paths for others to follow and she'll be the first to say it took a community for all of this to happen, for advocacy, to just change our future. So I'm so pleased and honored to share my conversation with Rafi Friedman Gersman. Rafi, I am so <laughs> glad to have you on Girl Boss. Thank you. Welcome to the show. I'm going to get right into it though because your heritage, girl, it is rich. It is rich and I feel like it's such a great starting point for this interview. So you were born in Honduras, Yep. but you were adopted pretty young. So when did you come to the United States? 
I was nine months old when I arrived in the United States, and it was actually 33 years ago, February 6, uh, 1988 is when I arrived at Miami International Airport. My dad's people are from Brooklyn, New York, and his parents were actually first-generation immigrants. And my mom's folks are from Philadelphia, and they were children of immigrants. And I had the fortune of knowing my mom's parents uh, and were a big part of my childhood growing up. And your grandmother was a suffragette as well? My great grandmother, great- she was 19 when she arrived in the United States in 1907. And she had left what was then the Russian Empire, what we now call Lithuania. Mm-hmm. There were anti-Semitic pogroms going on. And probably her family said, look, you need to you need to head out. And so my great grandmother left in 1907. When she got over, she was working in sweatshops. She got organized on both the the sweatshop conditions, but then we also know that the suffragist movement was trying to organize a lot of working class women. And so my great grandmother got involved. She was part of pickets and was involved in other types of protests. And I was named for my great grandmother. My great grandmother's name was Rose. And my mom wanted to make sure that I had a little bit more of a Latin name. This is before I transitioned, but you know, she named me Raphael, but Rafi for short. And I'm very proud of of that name. It's very important to me that I was named for my great grandmother. And just thinking we just passed the centennial of suffrage in the United States and, and just thinking like, wow, she was part of that is really cool to to be a walking sort of in her footsteps in many ways and what I do today. Oh, I love that. That's such a beautiful piece of your story. Like my my last name just means tree, I think. <laughs> <laughs> I think. I don't know. But advocacy seems to be a really big part of your family. Both of your parents were social workers, right? Yeah, yeah. Both my parents are social workers, both involved in a lot of advocacy work that was being done to make sure that children and adults with mental health were receiving good care, that they weren't dealing with discrimination. One of the earliest memories that I have is a community-led like arts program that works with these kids to express themselves, all kinds of different uh, mediums. And I got to go to some of those programs. That that was the type of exposure I got to advocating for those that really need advocacy so that they can live their lives. That's pretty amazing that you were able to be exposed to that. That's not everybody's experience. Did that carry with you to high school? Like, what were you like in high school? I wasn't necessarily part of any one clique. I had some close friends, but I was friends with everyone. I I came out when I was 12 years old, initially as gay. Hit puberty and just figured out what I liked and all of that. And my parents were pretty supportive. I think they were just wanted me to be cautious because I was so young and knowing that homophobia was was out there, even though we lived in pretty progressive liberal Massachusetts and in the town of Brookline in particular. But I was still young. I was also tiny. I, I've been five one my entire life. And so especially being at that time still living as a as a boy and being that short and I wasn't terribly effeminate but I was not butch it was I think it was the concern about being targeted but I 
just befriended a lot of good people who had my back. I actually, in high school, was a cheerleader. I was the only male cheerleader on the squad. And that was super cool. But, you know, I think for me, like deep down inside, I knew also that there was some something else there that it took me a while to figure out what the name was, which we now know was around gender identity. But I still had a pretty good high school experience on the whole. I was super involved with the Gay Straight Alliance at school, really didn't deal with any overt harassment or bullying, although I saw it happening to other kids and, and it really disturbed me. And I was, as as far as I remember, I was the only, at, at that time, the only boy who was out as, as gay. There were certainly girls who were out as lesbian or bisexual. I, I knew of, of other gay boys, but they were closeted. And I just think, unfortunately, during those times in the early 2000s, just culturally, the homophobia was still pretty rampant in our society, especially for, for boys. And so I, I think for me, it's it's interesting uh, just looking back at it now, uh, especially as a trans woman, and just to, to realize, wow, how the heck did I actually get through all of that? How did you get through that? I think I was just honest with people. I mean, I, I, I don't think I harped on it too much except in a political sense because the marriage movement was beginning in 2003. The Goodridge decision came down in the Massachusetts um, Supreme Court that would lead to the first same-sex civil marriages in the country. Um, I mean, I was a 16-year-old. I was a 17-year-old. I was witnessing history and I was involved with the community of sort of gay straight alliances across Massachusetts that were organizing around that. There's still some people that I'm dear friends with that I met through those experiences. The The queer community also raised me in some ways, especially starting in high school. So I, I think I just cocooned a little bit with them, but I also was friends with a tons of straight people as well. And I I think people knew, but it, they also knew me as, as their friend from the neighborhood and their classmate. And now I, I look at the cheerleading a little bit that it involved me with like the school spirit stuff and like, you know, the football team and the basketball team. And so it's like, I guess there was Rafi and like, you know, okay, Rafi's, you know, the queer kid, but also like, you know, she's cool. Or they would have said he back then. Um, and, and that's sort of the attitude I got. I wasn't, my mom says to me a lot, you know, you, you just weren't threatening to people. You were, you were nice. You're approachable. I can feel that too. (laughs) Yeah. Mm -hmm. And, and you're very open (laughs) for a 12 year old one to start reaching out and finding other communities Mm -hmm. of like-minded people Mm -hmm. outside of high school, not in your proximity. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's already pretty bold. And then being lunch table agnostic, I think requires someone who is very confident in themselves too. So I think that that helped you build that community and that network in a way. Yeah. You know, I I also think a lot of it's my parents. Yes, clearly. (laughs) The social workers, my dad's really the community organizer a little bit more than my mom in that regard. And I think it's also because I've never fit neatly into one box. I'm nearly 34 and I've worked in professional space for over 10 years. I think I've built up a lot of sort of tolerance to put the shyness away. But when I was little, I was shy and I I definitely need my time. But I also understand 
what it's like to be different or to be judged and all that. And I think just being able to relate to people in that way and say, look, like I understand, or I'm curious about your story, et cetera. I think it's because of all those differences and people could find some sort of way to avenue to relate to me and and me to relate to them. And while you were in high school, you came out, but that was just the beginning of your journey, right? Yeah, I, I think for a lot of us, something deep down inside isn't necessarily clicking. And it's funny because when I was in high school, I actually, I think I tried a little bit to butch up just to get through it all. And I actually grew a little bit of facial hair. And because I was doing cheerleading, I got a little jacked and, and stuff like that. But we read a book. It was written by a trans woman, Jennifer Feeney Boylan. Many folks know her. And she wrote this great book called She's Not There. And it was about her experience as a trans woman, as a college professor, transitioning. And she was a parent, so she was older and all of that. But when she was describing her childhood, a lot of things started clicking for me where I'm like, that's like me. I played with Barbie dolls. I had mostly girlfriends, but I had some guy friends when I was little, but I remember it was about seven or eight where a lot of my guy friends just started not hanging out with me. And the funny thing is the girls were all like, come on over. My best friend from childhood, Tina, she remembers one of, you know, her friends who wasn't so comfortable with me. Remember I was still a boy, you know, that like, why, why is this boy sleeping over here? And I remember Tina saying to me once, like, I always thought of you as a girl. I never understood why you had to go home or you had to sleep with my brother in a different room. So I don't know if there were signals going off, so to speak, and that like people were reading what they could. But remember, this was the 1990s and, and the early 2000s. There just weren't openly transgender kids. And if they were there, I think they were super hidden and maybe their families dealt with it in a very discreet manner. The only trans person I knew was one individual who was the parent of a kid at my Hebrew school. And and he was wonderful, great guy, but transgender was just an adult thing, if anything. And it was very rare and it just wasn't Mm -hmm. spoken about. Mm -hmm. So then you graduate high school and you go off to attend college in Minnesota at St. Olaf College. And this was kind of a big mm-hmm. chapter in your life. Mm-hmm. Can you tell me a little bit about that experience? Yep. So when I got to college, it I think was that moment when a lot more trans people were coming out. And after reading this book and really sitting with things and to get very personal, realizing, you know what, it's not just me having crushes on boys and wanting to have sex with boys. It was also about gender and relationships. Like, how do I actually want to be seen in this world? And yes, I think a lot of it actually had to do with how I wanted to have a relationship with with a man. And I, I just, I remember watching my close girlfriends in high school getting ready to go out and talking about boys and all that. And just deep down inside being like, Oh, I wish I could do that too. But but I also knew that no, 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 you're supposed to be a boy. So try your best or try to be a gay boy. But it was more than that. It was gender at the end of the day. And by by college, I just knew I didn't want to live a lie. I think I knew the significant risks, but I was willing to take it. And I think, again, it goes back to my parents. When I came out to my parents, it was a little bit of a shock for them. 
they weren't necessarily expecting it. The way they put it is, we all knew you liked boys since whenever we always assumed you were gay, you know, and especially from a sociological standpoint, as society slowly started opening the doors saying, okay, we're willing to listen to transgender people and understand them and build some space. And even in the LGBTQ community, we still had to like sort of fight for the T. It just so happened that I came of age then. And so I was part of that transitional generation of trans people that came of age as things were happening in our community and our rights and all that. And yeah, that's that's what happened. Did you have like a clear aha moment at this point, like while you were at St. Olaf? This is going to date me. Planet Out, for those people that remember Planet Out. Uh-huh. I remember you could select like different genders by then and, and you had a little profile and all of that. We're finding community in that way. We're finding each other over the net. It was by senior year that I'm realizing deep down inside, maybe I'm trans. I also met a trans guy who was a little bit older than me, but had transitioned in high school and and came to our GSA and talked about his story. And there was, she's a dear friend of mine, Grace Sterling Stoll, who runs Bagley and she's a trans woman. And I remember her doing a workshop for us. And I'm just thinking, yeah, that's me. (laughs) I, I just, I just knew deep down inside, but it was getting to that point, of course, that we all get to whatever mm-hmm. our journey is. That, that's my truth. Our dorms, I don't know if this is the case anymore, but the dorms at St. Olaf were divided floor-wise by gender. And so my freshman year, I'm, I was on the floor with a bunch of guys, but it, it's, I suddenly realized I'm living on the wrong floor. It's these guys are great, all of that, but like something started like rattling my brain. Like I'm, I'm like, they're gross. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. You know, and just, I think in some ways being in a very gendered binary environment and in a little bit more of a traditional space like Minnesota, at least in that time, I think it just felt like the pendulum started going more to the feminine where I'm like, this is really what it is. And that by sophomore year, I started really essentially starting to really just express my true self Mm -hmm. and all of that. And there were these two good friends of mine who girls who would like, let me try on their makeup. And then it just became more and more. And and then it just was natural. And then I, I remember there was some like queer dance that the local LGBT group on campus did. And they and the girls just decked me out yes. like completely and did my hair and everything. And I remember friends being like, Oh my God. And I, I just think it just it just stuck. And it isn't just about clothing or all of that. It it's really an intrinsic sense of self. The way that we like to say about gender to to help folks understand is like gender is between your ears at the end of the day. It's sort of, it's your brain. It's how you think about things. It's relational. Is Are there really screwed up systems that devalue certain genders over other? Absolutely. And of course, the whole experience with being a woman, being a woman of color, obviously having the history of feminists in my, in my family. I, I think a lot of it played into the type of woman I have become. And I realize this is very personal for me. So for listeners who are trans women, I understand there sometimes are disagreements about this, but I am not regretful that I experienced early life in my previous gender. 
I think it informs a lot of how I see the world. It certainly informs the way that I think I'm going to raise my children. And, and if I have a son, I will expect certain things of him and also make sure that really bad aspects of masculinity and patriarchy aren't being replicated in our family. But it also was part of my journey. Like, I, do, I, I don't deny it. And importantly, I did not change my name. I kept my name. I recognize that's a very personal decision. And I was able to keep that continuity a little bit to be like, I'm Rafi. I'm still the same person that you're friends with. I get that gender wise, I'm, I'm a little bit different now. But I think that's what also helped a lot of folks through the process. Because while it's a personal journey, it's also it's a relational journey, especially with family and friends. And I was very lucky that most of my friends in college and at home in Boston and people that I studied abroad with were really cool about it. Yeah. You know, I had a couple people that struggled and, and, and had some growth that needed to happen. But on the whole, I was really lucky. It's 2021 and a lot of things have changed. But a lot of things are the same, like the need to take care of yourself. I see you, neighbor, with your swole AF body. Kudos to you. But you know what? Physical health isn't your total health. You got to take care of that mental stuff, too. Everyone is at a different place in their mental health journey. For some, this process is really easy and natural. For others, it can be more difficult. But being able to talk it out is a great starting point for finding solutions, especially talking it out with someone like a therapist. And that's where BetterHelp comes in. They make finding the right therapist for you simple and affordable. And it only takes 48 hours to connect with a therapist. So our Girl Boss community gets 10% off their first month at betterhelp.com slash girlboss. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash girlboss. Oh, hey, Carly. Back again, aren't ya? Oh, hey, Puno. You always show up in the ads. Yeah, that's where I like to hang out, you know. <laughs> <laughs> but I have to tell you, Puno, I saw you reading that ad before, and that outfit is 100% fire. Yes. Ugh. Very, very nice. Well, thank you so much. This was actually made by a female founder, Kara, of Keiko. Ooh, who's Kara? She's an indie designer here in downtown Los Angeles. Mm. And Keiko is her clothing line. Ooh. I literally have all the outfits in my closet <laughs> <laughs> are Keiko because it's super duper cute. It's fun. It's whimsical, it's a lot of juxtaposition, mm -hmm. it's a lot of these unexpected details like scrunchy masks, you know? Like comfort and style. Mm-hmm. And then when your hair is all messed up and you're socially distanced, you can put your hair up. Nice. Boop. Convenience. The other thing that I love is that she manufactures locally. She focuses on partnerships with all small family-run factories, which is not easy to do. That's amazing. Yeah. We have a 10% off discount. <gasps> That's right. If you just go to Keiko.com, K-K-C-O.com, and use the code GIRLBOSS, you get 10% off, and I would do it because her masks sell out all the time. I'm already on there. Oh, good. Done. Amazing. <laughs> In cart. 
Carly. Yes. While you're waiting for that order confirmation, have you checked out the Girl Boss Daily Newsletter? I've been waiting for that. It's really good. And it comes out every day, actually. Oh, awesome. Every day. Every day. Every damn day. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my gosh. What's on it? What's in it? They have so many great things. They have career advice in it. um, And sometimes they cleverly tie it with job postings. Ooh. They talk about current events. Sign me up. It's really great. You really should just go to girlboss.com backslash newsletter and sign up. It's free. It's daily. It's easy. Again, done happening as you speak. Puno, you have all the hot tips. Thanks. You too. Oh, thanks. (laughs) (laughs) Bye-bye. Bye. See you next time. See ya. (laughs) When did you decide that you wanted a career in advocacy and wanted to be in politics? Yeah. Well, again, personal in terms of I had transitioned Mm -hmm. in the state of Minnesota, which was one of the earlier states that actually had protections for trans folks. And I knew that actually when I was at St. Olaf. So in, in part, that's why I cleverly said, I'm going to come out, I'm going to transition because I know that they can't kick me out or I could potentially sue them. Right. Already reading policy. Already, so yeah. <laughs> well, and you know, I took social policy and you know, I, I remember going with our class to some advocacy day up in St. Paul at the state house and loved it. So graduation happens in 2009. Remember the recession's going on. Unfortunately, I couldn't land a job. So I had to go home, basically. Mm. And I was very lucky. Um, and I really want to name that that luck and that privilege that I could go home, that my parents were great about me coming home. Because folks from college days ne- couldn't necessarily go home, not, not just for identity issues, but, you know, money issues or, you know, whatever. So, and it was a hard time. So when I got back to Massachusetts, I'm trying to figure out what the heck am I going to do? And then I realized, oh my gosh, Massachusetts doesn't have any local protections for trans people on the books. And they've been really good with sexual orientation, but there's just never been a statewide non-discrimination law that's been passed. There have been local ordinances, and, and I remember, I think it was like four communities at that point. So I, what do I do being the daughter of two social workers? I go online and I find out that there's this little organization called the Massachusetts Transgender Political Coalition led by this wonderful person in my life and dear friend, Gunnar Scott. And so I looked on their website and they had an internship and it was around advocacy and policy. And here I am, I'm living at home. And and I was like, you know what, I'm going to pick up the phone and call this Gunnar Scott and tell him I'm interested and what do I need to do to apply and all that. And I kid you not, it's the It's the phone call that changed my life. It's why I'm in Washington, D.C., because he told me in hindsight that he was just so curious about who the heck I was and that they needed someone who was policy. And I embarked on this incredible journey with the Mass Transgender Political Coalition. And so I, I started to meet other trans people in Boston as a young 22 year old out of college and At that time, the push was to pass a statewide non-discrimination law. And so one of my first 
jobs was to drop literature, informational literature off to different offices and knock on doors and introduce myself. And I remember thinking to myself, this is kind of like what my great grandmother did on suffrage. And it really did feel like walking in her because this was about gender too, and that we needed to be protected in recognition that we are equal before the law, mm. right? And so I just fell in love with the state house and the legislative process. And it just so happened that the city of Somerville had a part-time position that was open to be like their LGBT liaison with the mayor's office. And so I applied for that as well, got it. And so I got to work with Carl Shortino and we became very close. And when his former legislative aide left for another opportunity, he contacted me and said, would you be interested in working in my office? And so I said, yes, it opportunity a lifetime. Gunner was thrilled. The idea of having, frankly, an out trans person working on staff in the legislature in Massachusetts had never happened. This was sort of 2011. And what was great about that position is not only was I dealing with the bill and stuff like that, but I dealt with constituent services. And so I was introduced to a whole community of people in local Massachusetts politics. And luckily in at the end of 2011, our bill passed. So most protections for trans people were on the books and I absolutely loved it. That's such a wonderful opportunity to just kind of open up this new career path. What did you love about all of this the most? Um, I got to work on all types of different policy and I learned about advocacy. And I learned about community organizing through the lens of an institution like the State House. And, and I was still really actually interested in what's the next thing that I can do. And that's when I got down to Washington because someone told me about a job with the National Center for Transgender Equality. But like I had, you know, no aspirations to go work on the Hill, certainly not work at the White House, any of that. But I was like, I care about this issue. And it feels like the next step in terms of what we need to do for trans people in this country. And, and I was like, why not? Why don't why don't I go and, and try it? Not everybody wants to work within the framework of this government, within the walls of these institutions, and mostly because they're just fed up with how broken it is. But yeah, you decided that mm -hmm. you wanted to be involved in yes. the advocacy side to work within an institution or yes. within the government, as opposed to say, working outside as an activist. So what made you come to that decision? It, it probably is informed a lot by that suffrage history, the civil rights movement, and knowing that while these institutions have absolutely problematic issues like institutionalized racism and sexism and, and exploitation of working class folks, et cetera, et cetera, on and on. We live in a democracy. We're very lucky to live in a democracy where we are allowed to petition our government. And the process by which to push for change is in many ways in a legislature, either a state you know, legislature or Congress. Yes, there's also the presidency or a governorship and the administration and policies, and then certainly the judiciary. We have this system in place that has been working for 230 plus years. Obviously, we have you know had problems and different groups have had to fight for that inclusion in the phraseology of we the people and that all people are created equal. And that requires interfacing 
with these institutions. Someone's got to do it, I guess is the point. And I felt like, I guess I'll do it, you know? <laughs> and, and yet the great thing I think about is I have also been very connected to people on the ground, in the communities, but all these out LGBTQ folks and uh, women of color who are now in Congress. So I think the vast majority really understand that if we're going to effectuate change, we need a seat literally at the tables where decisions are being made. And I'm so grateful that, you know, we're able to do that now and to hopefully in the next few decades really push for changes that really will mean something in the Bronx or in rural South Dakota for, in you know, native communities on reservations or the queer kid in outside of LA who's just, just wants to go to school and become a scientist and doesn't want to deal with harassment. If, if someone who shares that experience is at the table in Washington or in Sacramento at the state capitol or even at the city level or even little school committee level, that matters. And I think that's what I tapped in and understood. Yeah, you certainly got things done in a very meaningful way because mm -hmm. you got noticed. You got so noticed that you eventually got a call from down the street, <laughs> Pennsylvania Avenue, to be precise. I want to hear more about that. Tell us about your time at the White House. What's funny is I ended up actually doing the job by which I got introduced to the White House in some way. So backup is because of working at National Center for Transgender Equality. And in those years, we were doing a lot of advocacy for the trans community and a lot of changes we wanted the Obama administration to make. Great things were done like passports. You know, we could now have our gender marker that reflected our, our true gender. All that kind of stuff was going on. So I was interfacing with folks at agencies, but also the White House and the folks at presidential personnel office were also reaching out to community groups like National Center for Transgender Equality and saying, who's out there that we we have these political appointed positions, so they are timed with the presidency. The, a, a political appointee is someone at an agency or in the White House itself that is basically helping the president push his, her, or their agenda forward. So there's an office in the White House called the Presidential Personnel Office, or PPO for short, that does the recruitment and hiring and placement for all those political appointees. And what I understand is the people at Presidential Personnel Office found out about me. So I get this phone call in the spring of 2015. I'd only been in Washington for less than a year. And it was from someone from the White House who said, I'd love to grab coffee. It was from the recruitment office and really just pick your brain about who in the trans community is out there. And we're looking for more trans people to serve in the administration. <laughs> You're like, hi. <laughs> I wasn't. Oh. I was like, okay, sure. I know these people, yada, yada, yada. And then it very quickly became about me. And I'm like, oh. And, and at first I was like, okay, well, I've been with National Center for Transgender Equality less than a year. It seems a little bit like rude if I leave them. But then my bosses there were like, no, no, no. We think like uh -huh. you should serve in the administration. And at that point, I was like, okay, well, maybe I'll go over to some agency. And the White House calls me basically and says, what would you think about working at PPO and, and doing recruitment? And in particular, there's this one portfolio about reaching out to not just the LGBTQ community, but a lot of different diverse constituencies. And what became a, are you interested? Yes, apply all of the background checks and things that that are done. And then in the summer of 2015, 
I get an offer. I'm like shocked. I don't know exactly like what to say because I'm. I, I was actually at a. I was at a speaking engagement on a panel with some colleagues up on Capitol Hill. Uh-huh. And so like, I realized it's the White House because when they call, it's very obvious as a uh, phone number under, unavailable and all that. So you you figure it out. Hi, and we're going to patch you in. <laughs> yeah, I know. So I run in the hallway and I'm, the person tells me we have a job offers and you need to like get back to me in 24 hours. And so I remember calling my parents and being like, do I do it? Full disclosure, public service doesn't pay a heck of a lot. And I remember my dad suddenly saying, Rafi, it's the (laughs) White House that is calling you. Like, for God's sake. Thank God he said that because it really just knocked me back into like reality of that. This is like an extraordinary opportunity and I'll learn something. Talk about the table that you're at. I I never thought. Yeah, exactly. I, I thought if anything okay, the local gay community is going to find out because I would be the first openly trans political appointee inside of the White House, fully a member of staff. There had been an intern, but in terms of like actual member of White House staff, this was the historical moment. So I was like, okay, like I'm just going to show up to work. And I am literally sitting down and a news flash uh-huh. because we had put out the National Center for Transgender Equality and the White House had decided we're going to make a little bit of noise about this is great. It's a significant moment. Trans person working at the White House. And my face is on CNN, MSNBC. I'm getting texts and I, I shut my phone off and I'm like, okay, it was really important for me that people met Rafi, not the transgender person, not the, not the spectacle. And so, but yet, uh, in the White House and uh, in every other room, there's a TV they watch and the everyone news. watches, you know, <laughs> they watch the news. And so everyone, so by, by midday, I'm hearing, that's her. But I remember my boss at the end of the day saying like, how do you feel? And I remember saying to him, Dave, I'm I'm here to do my job. It's great for the community. And everyone was just so supportive and thankful and visibly happy. Yeah. That must just feel like real progress to know that you could just show up to work to, well, to the White House exactly as who you are and also because of who you are and who you've been advocating for. What a great moment. Yeah. The obligation I feel every day is that people understand I am accessible. I am part of the community. As a dear friend of mine puts it, girl, you you have access to help open doors for others, yeah. right? And I think that's part of it is like, w- with this comes incredible responsibility. And when I was tapped to do the LGBTQ portfolio for the Office of Public Engagement, so essentially being the, the LGBTQ liaison for the White House, that you, you're representing your community, good times and bad times. I was there for the Stonewall National Monument unveiling, and that was an obvious, incredible community celebration. But I, but two weeks before, I was running point for how the White House was responding to the terrible event uh, in Orlando with the Pulse nightclub shooting. Mm. You know, so I I feel like I, I, I carry a lot of the community with me. And, and of course, it's not just the LGBTQ community. It's also the Latino community, it's the American Jewish community, all all of my communities. I think for me, it has been this interesting journey of making sure that people understand that I'm their friend, Rafi. I'm there for them. You know, I definitely understand 
it 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 broke barriers because now we're getting our first Senate confirmed trans person uh, to be an assistant secretary of health, uh, Dr. Rachel Levine, good friend of mine. Um, we have out trans legislators like Sarah McRide that I was mentioning or Danica Rahm and my dear friend Andrea Jenkins in the city of Minneapolis. Andrea, if you're listening, I hope you will run for mayor someday, if not run for an even bigger office. And it's not just me. It's a whole generation of trans people and others, right, of all different experiences saying we're here Mm -hmm. and we want to be part of this thing that we call democracy that's messy, that's complicated, that for the last four years has been incredibly difficult at times. And yet what's so exciting is that people like me show up and what I'm looking forward to is the folks that are very fast behind me, yeah. you know, coming up. Like I tell my team at work all the time, what I ask for you every day is to is to do your best and to be your best. And I think that's the thing that we as a community want out of people that are in public service. Yeah. And and I think that's what's so exciting and refreshing about the change that we're seeing not only here in Washington, but around the country about people stepping up and saying, you know what, I'm going to, I'm going to do, I'm going to try my best and I'm going to try advocating for the community and let's do it because by not trying, we're not doing, and we need to do. And you've seen a lot of wins and losses, but I don't think you would have been good at your job if you didn't Mm -hmm. experience Mm -hmm. both. For me, I feel really overwhelmed by it. So how do you deal with the overwhelming feeling that there's just so much to do still, but also hold on to this beautiful truth that you have truly opened doors for others? Yeah, well, I think part of it was I left the White House on January 6, 2017, a couple of weeks before Trump and the new administration came in. And where I ultimately went back was uh, National Center for Trans Equality because I realized like we got to defend all the things that we just accomplished. Yeah. What I realized was that a lot of the change that we need to see, while we're going to push for it in Washington, we also need to push for it more at that local state level because state government, as you're learning yourself, and even local, local government, impacts our lives yeah. every day. It's the policy about whether we put out the trash on Tuesday or, or Wednesday. It's it's about whether, frankly, in this day and age of COVID, whether schools reopen and teachers go back. Well, that matters. But what has happened and continues to happen is that the representation that we are guaranteed by the districts that are created, not all districts, unfortunately, are created equal. And in fact, this horrible practice that's known as gerrymandering, which is essentially mapped manipulation. And one of the things I really wanted to figure out about like, why can't we get a lot of LGBTQ stuff done? Like why in North Carolina in 2016, they have this horrible anti-transgender bill that that passed. And it's like Texas that have some of the worst anti-LGBT laws and other laws that are about women's access to reproductive care, et cetera. I really should say person's access to reproductive care because trans People, trans men, I have children, et cetera. The point is, is that policy is impacted by who is at the, that table, like we were talking about. And so I joined a campaign called All on the Line, mm. which is about pushing back on this gerrymandering practice that is happening through 
advocacy, through collective organizing. We really believe in the intersectionality of all these different issues that are, as we say in the pun, is all on the line. And so I work for this organization and I oversee programming in the Midwest and the East Coast. I have state directors that I work with and they are wonderful. We have a great team. And it's, it's while I'm not as connected to LGBTQ advocacy that's happening directly, what's great is that we, we believe in it and we want it to happen. We realize if, if we can actually in this year when redistricting is happening in the states, different processes per state, but it's important that we fight for these fair maps because that will translate hopefully to some change in policy. Mm-hmm. And in a place like Arizona, which still does not have any statewide non-discrimination protections for LGBTQ folks. Same thing in Pennsylvania. Pennsylvania is the only state north of the Mason-Dixon line. Well, really now, even Virginia has passed uh, protections for LGBTQ folks, but Pennsylvania hasn't. Why? In large part because it's such a gerrymandered state. Wow. We're trying to fight for fairer maps, which means better representation for communities, especially the most vulnerable communities. So it's an exciting project to be a part of. I love that. And I think that is what is so amazing about you is that you're just like, where is the problem? Where's the root of the problem? Because that's where I'm going (laughs) to go. (laughs) Right. Yeah. Yeah. No, I I joke with people at work that a lot of times I'm Maybe I should have gone to medical school because like I'm diagnosing things all the time. Yeah. And I'm like, well, like actually the thing that's really going on here is X, Y, and Z. Yeah, I don't. And I, I think I'm curious and and I care. And, and I think part of it is because I have met people who care about me and my community. And so I think in a lot of ways, it's about reciprocity too. Mm-hmm. Are, are there other examples of challenges that face the trans community today? Yeah, well, unfortunately, transgender people still face incredible uh, levels of discrimination. We have very high unemployment uh, rates compared to the general population. I think a lot of folks are very aware of the incredible, heinous violence that is committed against trans people um, especially Black trans women throughout the country and 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 Latina trans women and Native trans women, I think this past year, in fact, was the highest rate or highest numbers reported of trans people being killed in the United States. I think there are a lot of reasons behind that that we're still trying to figure out. I certainly poverty, discrimination, the lack of access to live in safe communities in jurisdictions that take our lives seriously. We we have made a lot of strides, but there's still a lot of work to go. The one good thing is that the laws are starting to really catch up. And actually last year, it, it made some news, but I, I think just given last year in the pandemic and everything else that was going on, the Supreme Court ruled on a case um, about a trans woman who worked at the time at a, at, a, at a funeral parlor and was fired. Her name was Amy Stevens. Unfortunately, Amy passed last year. But what's great about her legacy is that we have a court case, we have a case that was merged with another case. So while she doesn't get the name title, so to speak, but I think of it as Amy's case, is that it was a decision by the Supreme Court that said discrimination 
against transgender people and gay, lesbian, bisexual folks as well is a form of illegal sex discrimination in a workplace setting and and cannot be. And so in the in the area of employment, certainly it is so exciting because it now means trans people across the country, even in those jurisdictions like Mississippi that don't have local protections, federal law still applies. And so that if someone is, if a trans person is working at a laboratory or or might be a, a local school teacher who decides to transition, they can't get fired now. Mm-hmm. That's incredibly mm-hmm. important. And arg- and I'm not a lawyer, but some of the lawyers would argue, and it now opens the floodgates for all types of coverage in all areas like healthcare, like public accommodations, et cetera. And so while there's work still to be done, and one of the things that I'm very excited that I know my colleagues are working at here in Washington to pass a, a, a bill known as the Equality Act that would, you know, basically say all these things, you know, all these areas are protected areas for for LGBTQ folks, there can't be discrimination, housing and education, all of that. We have seen progress happen. And and that's why I really do believe in my lifetime, we're going to see what I would call full legal equality. I think that what the, the jury is out around lived equality, right? And I think we're going to have to still go through it. But what's great is, it doesn't, it no longer matters what jurisdiction you're living in. We used to like sort of say to ourselves, we need to make sure we're in a safe jurisdiction like New York City or California. Like you don't want to get a flat tire in Wyoming because there are no protections there. And if you try and get help, they could discriminate against you, all those things. Well, if we pass the Equality Act or if we get similar types of court rulings like we got last year, it means we are protected anywhere essentially the United States flag is flown where we have jurisdiction, Mm -hmm. right? And that is so important because it goes to the other thing that I think is really key is LGBTQ folks, all folks, of course, we should just be able to live our lives. I, I say to a lot of the LGBTQ youth that I meet with, I just want you to be successful in what you want to want to be, whether it's a doctor or I, maybe you'll be one of those cool scientists that figures out how we're going to live on another planet because look what we're doing to our planet. But the point is, I want them to also just focus on that. And yes, be proud of being LGBTQ. We, the community, don't expect everyone to be an LGBTQ activist because at some point we should all be out of a job Mm -hmm. because the job should be done. Like we won, we got it, we got our rights. But as we've seen, of course, with Black folks and Native folks and women and all the different issues that we still deal with, a hundred years after suffrage, women are still not equal in this country. And so the work continues. That's very important to me. Mm. So I guess, how has your definition of success changed? I think it's at the end of the day, feeling that I have purpose and that it's meaningful to not only me, but to the people around me. I wanna make sure that people are are safe and happy. I think it's exactly what was discussed at that dinner table with my parents, which is being very aware 
of what's happening in the world. And I grew up in a progressive Jewish community that believed in in social action and that we are, whether you want to believe it, it, it's something that God or whatever, jury's still out for me about that kind of stuff. But I think what I learned more was that it is your obligation to help humanity, to give back. And and that's what you're supposed to do to be a good person. Just hearing how you've navigated your life, it seems very natural for you to be an advocate for others because you can experience so many different perspectives and you are incredibly successful at understanding, but it's Mm -hmm. hard to own and it's hard to um, appreciate sometimes as well. And I, I feel like you've done so much work too in trying to figure that out. Yes, thank you. Well then, it is time for Ask a Girl Boss. It's time to ask a girl boss. So in the last episode, I asked Sophia a question. I would love it if you asked a question to the girl boss community. What's the one question that you would ask? Mm-hmm. What was that moment where you realized you exist? I think for me in particular, it was when I was swept under um, by a wave on a beach in Cape Cod, but it somehow like made me aware of like, I exist, it was scary. But like going from there and using it kind of as a, as a little bit of building a pyramid of, okay, what was the next step? What was your first like real deep memory of a connection with someone? I think that helps build out your story. So it's not all traumatic either. Some of it's really good. Like, and I think it's just building those blocks. And, and, and that's why I start with that question there. What was that moment where you realized you exist? I am going to think about that. Probably going to drink some water, maybe smoke a little weed and think about that <laughs> question. I got to say, Rafi, she was so wonderful to talk to. So much goodness there. And yeah, I joked a little bit about getting high and thinking about that last question, but it's a really good question. It's a deep question, but it's really good. I mean, what was that moment you realized you exist? That moment where you felt incredibly alive? Have a think on that. And then we would love to hear your feeling alive moments. You can share your answer with us on TikTok or Instagram. We're at Girlboss. We'd love to hear it. This is our second episode of Girlboss this season, and we are really happy you joined us. If you want to learn more about what Rafi is doing at the National Democratic Redistricting Committee, or if you want to get involved and help make voting districts more equitable, you can check out links on our website or in the show notes. And if you got some feedback, we are always learning and want to continue learning. So write us a review on Apple Podcasts and leave us a rating. The best way that you can support Girl Boss is by subscribing to this podcast and then uh, sharing it with your friends. We even have a newsletter, by the way. So subscribe and get it in your inbox. 
Girlboss Radio is a production of I Love Creative Studio, original music composed by Nija. And this episode was produced by Christopher Olin with help from Carly Pryor and Juliana Clark. Our editorial director is Clemence. And special thanks to Taylor, Nora Agency, Kaylee, and America. Thanks, guys. You're awesome. 